Welcome to Harbour. We are a progressive Christian faith community based in Carrickfergus, Northern Ireland. You can also find us at harbourfaith.com. So, what I've done uh, over these two weeks is uh, divided the topic of the Bible and sexuality. You get to a certain age, uh, I was saying to some folk over here, 10 years ago I, I went to work part-time in some churches in Cavan, uh, and not, not really, you know, particularly uh, in a novel way. The good people of those parishes nicknamed me Jesus for reasons of my, of my hair. Five years ago, I left Cavan, went to Leitrim, and by the time I'd got there, the nickname had turned from Jesus to Moses because of the hair coloring. Uh, it's now Gandalf, so there we go. That, 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 that's all right. Whatever works for people works for me as well. So what I've done over the, these two weeks is I've divided, obviously, the topic into two parts. The really juicy bit is next week. Aha! So you can, you know, but there's a reason for that. Um, so if you've come thinking, you know, I want to hear, about, you know, about those biblical passages in, in Leviticus and Corinthians and Romans and so on, that will all be next week. Uh, this week, I, I'm subtitling, if I can get this to work, uh, I'm subtitling this. What's come up there behind me? I'm seeing three different things. What does that say? Taking the Bible seriously, doesn't it? Yeah. I'm subtitling uh, tonight's um, extended talk, Taking the Bible Seriously. And next week, I've subtitled the, the, the talk or our time together, Taking the Texts Seriously. Uh, there's a reason for that, because I think very often in discussions with regard to the Bible and sexuality, people don't really want to do the groundwork. Uh, they want to get into the hustle and the bustle and the argument and the little blurb that Steve put up on um, the Harbour Faith Communities um, we we website. People want to argue and dispute, but they want to do it, frankly, very often with very little background knowledge and without taking the time uh, or giving other people the courtesy of taking time to explore it and to try to find out all the background stuff. So tonight is all the background stuff that we need in order to look at those texts that people argue about endlessly. Does that seem reasonable enough to you? I hope it does because that's what we're going to do in, in, in any case because I think there's no other way of doing it. Now, there is, of course, a different way of, of approaching the Bible and approaching the scriptures. Uh, and that is, you know, just to pick up a Bible and to read it devotionally. And that's fine. Absolutely nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with picking up uh, a Bible and just, you know, taking a passage from the Psalms. Uh, and then the next day, if you're so inclined and so pious to do this, to pick up the Bible again and pick up a passage from the book of Revelation and a third day, a passage from the book Genesis and just treat them all the same. Uh, and get some, you know, food for your soul and food for your spirit from that. That's fine. That's wonderful. Using the Bible devotionally, which is what very many people do, is great. But we, we don't have the freedom, I think, to do that when we're talking about such an important uh, a topic as this, the Bible and sexuality. Uh, this is such an important subject for everyone. And please note, the topic is the Bible and sexuality. It's not the Bible and one part or one type of sexuality. 
Uh, and I do have to say, we'll look a, a little bit uh, at, at gender next week, even though, strictly speaking, of course, gender and sexuality are two different things, but I, I suspect people will be interested in that. So uh, it was just much too uh, cumbersome a title to put everything into, into one small and short and brief title. People literally have died because of other people's opinions on this topic. And that's why it's much too important than simply to lift the Bible and say, well, you know, I believe God is saying this, or the Bible says that, or I understand this, that, or the other. That's fine devotionally. Um, you, you would have been aware, <coughs> excuse me, just recovering from a chest infection, you would have been aware that the BBC ran a program about a, a young girl in England who committed suicide because she believed her church uh, could not accept her uh, and her, her sexuality. Uh, now, that was a little bit of an old story because that, you know, that story first hit a couple of, of years ago. And I remember reading things that the people in the church said at that time on their journey to, to changing. Uh, but that, unfortunately, is by no means an isolated incident. And certainly with regard to the culture that very many of us have been brought up in in, in in Northern Ireland, it literally is a matter of life and death. So we've got to do the homework. Apologies to those who have done some of this before, because you've been to some of the previous things that, that I've done. Um, but I think it's worth retracing the ground for you going over the ground for everyone. And for those who'll be saying, oh, well, we looked at that before, uh, we end up in a different place and there's enough new stuff. So the first question that I want us to ask is this. Uh, which Bible are we talking about? So I want to put a little bit of background into, into that. Uh, as many of you will know, because if you're here, you're probably interested in, in all of this sort of stuff. Uh, the actual biblical documents were written over a long period of time. I've said here, and this is conservatively, uh, 1200 BC to about 100 AD. That's 1300 years. That's a long time. 1300 years back from where we are in 2018 brings us to where? Somebody do the maths for me. The 8th century. In fact, it would bring us back exactly to... Am I right in saying 718? Wouldn't that be right if we're going 1,300 years back from where we are today? What was going on in Ireland in the 8th century? The Vikings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How different was Irish society from the society then uh, to the society that we have now? Hugely different. Massively different. And not only that, between the society that we had then and the society that we had now, we had lots of other societies in between, didn't we? Little dates like 1690 suddenly spring to mind. And the society in the world of 1690 is hugely different from the world of uh, 718, which is hugely different, well, maybe not so hugely different from the world of 2018, but in part different. Now, it was no different back in what we call Bible days. Isn't that a funny term that we use? Back in Bible days, as if that was a weekend in Palestine. We're talking 1,300 years. 
That's a, that's a huge difference of time. What's going to change in 1,300 years? Throw out, just shout out the sort of things that will change in, in 1,300 years in, in any society or any geographical area. Do you say the wallpaper? <laughs> not, not in our houses it happens, but no, 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 never, never mind. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, which, not even which nation rules, which nation is there? Which group of people are there? What culture is there? Sorry, Roy. Yeah, not in Palestine, but in other places, in our culture, the introduction of printing. Thinking back in Palestine, 1300 years, 1200 BC to 100 AD. Yeah, the Romans didn't even exist, 1200 BC. Uh, at least not as the... Uh, not as anything, actually. Um, the, the Greeks hardly existed, in, in, in a sense, as an independent or, or unified culture. Almost everything changed, including language. In the 1300 years during which the biblical documents were written, when it all started off, what language was spoken or what was the written language? At the very start, Hebrew. In between Aramaic and by the time we get to the New Testament, Greek, and as we'll see uh, in a few slides further on, that's a hugely important thing. So uh, that's just, you know, when people say the Bible says, what I want us to think about tonight is what exactly can you possibly mean when you say the Bible says? Or can you even use that phrase in a meaningful and intelligent way at all? Devotionally, yes, you can. You can say the Bible says to me because you've you know, picked it up and you've got some inspiration from it. But in terms of hard study and looking at really important subjects, what do we mean or what do people mean when they say the Bible says? Well, which Bible? Uh, as you will know, the contents of the Bible vary. We'll see and we'll test the memory of people who were here before the summer when we looked at this one briefly. How many so-called books uh, or you know, independent documents are there in the Bible? It's funny how we call you know, the, the, the bits of the Bible, the documents, the books, because some of them are only one page long, uh, which is not a bad job if you can get a, a job writing a book of one page. Uh, how many books in the Bible? Right, well, that's an interesting one. <laughs> 32, 52, the entire Bible? Yeah, but most people are likely to say, if um, you, you count them up, um, 66. There are 66 books in the Bible that most Protestant churches use. How many in the Bible that the Roman Catholic Church uses? Oh, so close. 73. Three, if you were uh, a member of the Russian or the Greek or Serbian Orthodox churches, how many books? Go on, throw out anything, it doesn't matter. 482, almost 78. And you may recall, if you belong to our, uh, one of our friends in the Ethiopian Orthodox Church, there are, yeah, somebody's saying it, 
almost again, almost right, uh, 81. So immediately when people say, the Bible says, it's quite reasonable to say, which Bible? And the answer that most people would give is? They're, yes. <laughs> and, and the real one is? R1. R1. Absolutely well done. The, the two answers that I'd scribbled on the back of my hand there. Uh, most people go, well, it's our Bible. Because, uh, you know, many people in this room may have been brought up in churches where the 66 books, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament, that's the Bible. Oh, we'll get on to that in about six slides further on as well. Um, Whereas if you were brought up uh, in the Roman Catholic Church, we're looking at 73. If you're in the Greek Orthodox Church, and the Greek Orthodox Orthodox churches uh, of the East take their faith and their beliefs very seriously in so much as they believe that they are the genuinely true Church of Christ, they will say 78 and... um, I do know where the Ethiopian Orthodox Church got their other three from, but you'll just have to Google that for yourselves. Most of the differences lie in the Old Testament canon. Now, for many topics, that wouldn't be that important. But for our topic, it is, isn't it? Because when it comes to the Bible and sexuality, people feel that they're able to quote passages from the Old Testament and from the New Testament with equal aplomb and authority. So even though the differences in all these Bibles are mostly in the Old Testament, that's still important. And it's actually quite important for lots of theological reasons if we had time to go into that as well. Why are they different? Anybody know Anybody know what the, uh, the basic difference in uh, our Old Testament Bibles are? Well, we're going to look uh, at the selection process. And again, this is just to get everybody thinking that when you might say or you hear somebody saying, the Bible says, we need to stop and say, hold on, what do you mean? Or what can you possibly mean when you say that? What... what is, is, is all the background stuff that you're putting in to that simple statement the Bible says. So we've already seen, it depends whether you're looking at Roman Catholic, Orthodox and so on, versions of the Bible. Anybody got any idea why we have such different versions of the Bible or of the Old Testament uh, as Christians call it? Steve yeah, look at that, that man sitting there googling furiously in, 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 in the background. That's why I knew, that's why I'd give you a wee moment before I would uh, leap on you. Interestingly, at the time of Jesus, there were two versions of the Jewish scriptures. And it wasn't the authorized version uh, and a different one, but it was a little bit like that. Uh, and these were uh, the Hebrew Bible, as it's often called, uh, and a thing called the, the Septuagint. Uh, and the Septuagint, anyone? Greek. Yeah, Greek written when? Around about the second century BC. Uh, it was a translation of all the other books in the Hebrew um, canon of, of, of the Hebrew Bible, if you like, uh, plus a number of other writings as well. Uh, which were quite important 
for lots of people and um, still quite important for differences of theology and doctrine between Protestant churches and Catholic churches and Orthodox churches as well. So which is the right one? Is the Hebrew Bible the one that was used in Palestine by the rabbis, the Pharisees? Is that the real Old Testament? Or is it the Greek translation plus other books that was in use in Palestine, but throughout the um, diaspora, throughout the, um, the Jewish population living in, in, in the Roman Empire? Which is the right one? They were both there. Where did the Exodus come from? Um, same, same place, in a way, as all the others uh, came from uh, leaders within the Jewish community uh, writing spiritual books or books of interpretive history. Um, so in, in a lot of the Old Testament, as, as we now know, it was really gathered together uh, between the 4th and 2nd centuries BC, even though many of the documents were written before. Uh, so at the time when the documents were being brought together and put into a canon, <coughs> two separate processes took place. Uh, one based in Jerusalem and Palestine, uh, and one in the diaspora, including Alexandria, which was a, a very important part of a, a city for Jewish thought. Um, Philo, uh, a near contemporary of Jesus, for example, uh, was a leading Jewish theologian and, and philosopher. Well, it's a good question. Uh, and it's such a good question uh, that um, it's hard to find the right answer. In the end, the Hebrew Bible was the Bible that the rabbis supported, the Pharisees. And after the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed and Judaism, as we now know it, emerged, uh, the Hebrew Bible was the one that the Jewish rabbis said, that's the real Bible for them. But the interesting thing is, in the New Testament, it was the Greek Bible that was used. So when you see uh, quotations in the New Testament of Old Testament passages, they're not translations of the Hebrew Bible. They're simply passages lifted out of the Septuagint. So for Christian churches then, where, where should we jump? Do we go with the Hebrew rabbis? who, of course, for them, they, they, their scriptures were incredibly important, or do we go with the early church? And, of course, for them, the scriptures were very important as well. Well, needless to say, uh, the various uh, Old Testament um, books, the canon that emerged, uh, came after lots of theological disputes and church divisions and so on. Which would you go for? Or how would you know? See, frankly, there's no way of telling, is there? So just a wee bit louder, please. Yes. The most... Well, that... You see, hmm... That... that, that that's interesting. The one that has the most text um, 
Interesting topic, that uh, textual criticism, because what we tend to find is that while there are lots and lots of texts of both, um, most of the texts are copies of, a very, of very few texts. So what you find around the first century AD, uh, or a little bit after it, is you get a little group of texts for the Hebrew Bible and a little group of texts for the Septuagint. So while that sort of would bring us further along, it doesn't really in reality, even though it actually should. Well, I want to suggest that for most people, most Christians and most interested people today, there's no way of knowing. There really isn't. I mean, I don't know, apart from someone who's got the brain the size of 17 planets and who's really into Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic, how you could even begin to investigate this. What really happens in reality, folks? If you're a Protestant, it's the 39 books of the Old Testament. If you're a Catholic, it's the, how many is that, 30, whatever it is, 73 books in total. Uh, if you're brought up in the Greek Orthodox Church, it's 78. We, we do what our tradition has told us to do. And in the end, until the Reformation, we only had 73 books in the Catholic Church, <coughs> excuse me, 78 books in the Greek Orthodox Church. We leave our Ethiopians to one side for the moment. And then when Martin Luther came along, uh, he was the first Christian for one and a half millennia to say, let's go back to what the rabbis said. And why did he do it? Oh, well, that, that's, a, that's a huge thing to go in, into, but that wasn't quite the reason. Because... Well, that, that, that wasn't the real reason. The real reason was it fitted his theology. And because those extra books really didn't fit into his theology, because those extra books have interesting things like uh, encouraging people to pray for the dead. And you go, right, okay, well, that's not going to fit into Martin Luther's theology terribly well, is it? Uh, so there are lots of intricate arguments, but in fact, the choice of Bible that we use is often dictated by our background and by our existing theology. So the Bible says, which Bible? It's not an unreasonable question uh, to ask. Let's look at the New Testament then, because we're maybe on, on sort of safer ground here, you might say. Well, again... This is just getting us to do some hard thinking about the Bible and what we mean and what content can we put into the expression the Bible says. How many books in the New Testament? 27 when? 27 now, yes? So how far back can we go and say 27 books in the New Testament? <coughs> Excuse me. Oh, I like this in the Whitby, but it's a wee bit, it goes a wee bit uh, back further than that. Well, yes, and sorry? Con Constantine and so on. Well, it's a little bit um, there, thereabouts. Here we go. <coughs> the 27 books that we have in the New Testament um, didn't exist as the New Testament 50 years after the life of Jesus. 
or 100 years after the life of Jesus or 200 years after the life of Jesus. Uh, there was, thank you very much, there were huge and interesting arguments and disputes about what the New Testament scriptures should be for the better part of 250 years. And it wasn't until, what have I written here, the Synod of Hippo, which is, you can make all sorts of jokes, but we won't there. The Synod of Hippo in 393 AD. How many years was that after the life of Jesus? Close enough, 360 years. Now, that's interesting, I think. Now, most of the books, uh, the 27 books that we have, were settled a little bit before that. Um, and it, it, it took a while before all 27 were finalized uh, and then were ratified officially 360 years after the life, death, resurrection uh, of Jesus. What were the ones that were latecomers? The book of Revelation, yeah. James. Any others? Hebrews, Hebrews yeah. The books of um, Timothy, first, you know, Paul's letters to Timothy and, and, and Titus and so on. Uh, if, you ha if you were a Christian 50 years after the life of, you know, 60 years after the life of Jesus, 90 AD, and you wanted to turn to New Testament scriptures, although you wouldn't have called it that, of course, what might you have had in your hand? In, in addition to one of the versions of the Old Testament, uh, in terms of New Testament, what would you have had in your hand? <coughs> you might have had a gospel. Might, yep. And you might have had one or two letters of Paul. And if you happen to be close to where James was writing, you might just have got a copy of that. A hundred years after the life, death, resurrection of Jesus, the real dispute began about what bits were New Testament, what bits were Christian scripture. A man called Marcion set the whole thing off. <coughs> and he said, here is the Christian equivalent of the Old Testament. Any idea what he proposed? You can Google this one as well, Steve. Sorry? Uh, no, which books? Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, what, what he said was uh, an edited version of the Gospel of Luke, an edited version of the Acts of the Apostles, um, and I think maybe Paul's letter to the Romans. That's 100 years. Some people said, no, there's more than that. Because well, Marcion had a certain axe to grind, as it happened anyway. But when we talk about the Bible, the Bible that we have, and the Bible that honest to God, sincere Christian people had 200 years after the life of Jesus, were very different. Were they any less Christians because they didn't have the 27 books that we have? One would like to suggest not, and in all probability, many of them were much better Christians, uh, certainly than I would ever uh, hope to be. 
So how did we get these books settled? How did we get the 27 books that are now in our New Testaments agreed after 360 years? Any ideas? Argument, Gary. Debate. A bit of skullduggery as well. Politics. It's all there. Uh, sorry? Well, it's, it's an interesting thing that, that a long time after the dispute began, people began to say, well, let's see if there's some sort of apostolic connection. Um, the difficulty with that was that there were lots of books swirling around that claimed to have apostolic connection. Uh, and while it's something that's often said, you know, they go back to the apostles, well, frankly, when the debate was taking place, there was no actual way of knowing whether they'd gone back to the apostles or not. Here was the interesting thing. Uh, as the church developed its orthodox theology, it was also developing its understanding of its scriptures. So the two went hand in hand together. So it was a little bit of um, chicken and egg, if you like. That's what I'm going to call in uh, the, the, the historical um, process, which was this. I'll run through this as, uh, as quickly as I can. The early documents that became eventually the 27 that we have in the New Testament uh, arose organically within Christian communities because people wanted to know about Jesus. They wanted to know about what Paul had taught. They wanted to know what they should believe now. Uh, and uh, the, these documents outlined um, what a faith community believed about its faith and its history uh, and its culture. But here's the interesting thing that happened over these centuries that we're looking at. The documents of a faith community became documents for a faith community. And then we had this transition of documents that were descriptive of a community became definitive for an institution. And that took place over hundreds of years. Now, I've said this, this <coughs> process took 360 years. 360 years ago from where we are today brings us back to when? Roughly. So 300 years brings back 1718. So like 1650 or something. Cromwell. So if we were looking at a process that started with Cromwell and ended today, that's a long time with a lot of changed opinion uh, and a lot of arguing backwards and, and forwards, as, as, if you like. In the end, as always, history is written by the winners. And the winners in the Old Testament argument for Jewish faith were the rabbis, the successors of the Pharisees. <coughs> and the winners, as far as the Christian church was concerned, was what we call Hellenistic Christianity, the Greek Christian church. Now, all I'm saying here is, when we pick up the Bible and we go to look at the topic of the Bible and sexuality, we've got to have in our minds all of this background stuff. 
which should at least cause us to hesitate a little bit before we just lift up a volume and say, well, the Bible says. Why was the book of Revelation not accepted by very, very many Christians in the second and third centuries? That's a really good question. Why, is the gospel, why was the gospel of Thomas not accepted when the gospel of John was? That's a good question as well. And a lot of it has to do with tussles within the church. And eventually the winners decided this is the Bible that we call the New Testament. And as I say, history is always written by the winners. Let's move on a little bit further. You still with me, folks, uh, on this race through the background? Now, we might think we're on easier territory here because... Most people would know that when you pick up this volume of documents, be it 66, 73, 78, or 81, uh, it's not just one volume written by one person. Isn't that right? And so we're well used to the idea of saying, well, of course, the Bible has got lots of different types of literature in it. And so we've got to work out, before we try to interpret a text, what sort of literature it is. So shout out for me, please, if you would. What types of writing, what types of literature do you think you'll find in the Bible? History. History. Shout out some more. Poetry. Poetry. Letters. Letters. Wisdom. Wisdom. Prophecy. Prophecy. Commentary. Commentary. Anything else? Legal. Legal stuff? Romance. Parables. Romance. Who said romance? Good man. Give me an example of romance in the Bible. Uh, the Song of Songs or the Song of Solomon. Um, a, a right racy little read it is too, uh, if you see it in its original context, which was a, a romance drama. So we, we sort of feel we're on solid ground here. We can look at um, Exodus chapter 20 and say, well, that's law. Uh, we can look at uh, part of Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 15, and go, that's story, that's, that's parable, uh, and so on. But there's a big but that we have to think about, and it's this. That our literary types are not necessarily the same as the literary types then. So here are some of the uh, bits and pieces uh, that we might say. Uh, the Bible contains drama, poetry, history, narrative, myth, legend, law, genealogy, prophecy, parable. And go, well, when we go to read any of the bits of the Bible that might be relevant to the Bible and sexuality, we must ask ourselves, is this poetry, is it history, is it law, and so on. That seems reasonable, doesn't it? What's your understanding of prophecy? Shout out. Humor me. Prophecy does what? Or at least, how does it, mostly today, if somebody uses the word prophecy, what do they mean? You're telling the future. Is that, that's what we mean. That is not what the word or the literary type meant, either in the Old Testament or the New Testament. Prophecy in the Old Testament, the New Testament, was not telling the future. It was speaking on behalf of God. Now, that's very important, 
But it's a very different thing, isn't it, from telling the future. History, solid ground here. If we use the word history today, what do we mean? Factual stuff. Like what? On the 11th of November uh, this year, we will be commemorating what? Yep, 100 years, the centenary of the armistice of the First World War. (coughs) That's what we mean by history, isn't it? Well, it's a little bit more. By history, we mean that and our understanding of it. What did history mean back then? Well, actually, when we go back to the 1200s, it didn't exist. The concept of history didn't exist as a concept. It did by the time of the New Testament, but history was really a way of encapsulating the meaning of an individual's life or encapsulating what it meant to be a certain group of people. Sometimes that meant, you know, actual events would be talked about. Sometimes it meant what? Folklore, what we would call folklore, would be brought in. Or stories that are handed down within families. Or stories that would, you know, bring together a number of elements of things that may or may not have actually happened to illustrate the sort of people that we are or the sort of person that so-and-so was. So if you've time and the interest and you go back and you read uh, A Life of Alexander the Great, what will you find if you you lift up that um, history, if we use that term, what will you find in A Life of Alexander the Great written a uh, hundred years or so after his death. Lots of great stuff. Lots of legend. Lots of miraculous things going on. Lots of healings that he did. Lots of potents in the heaven illustrating his birth. If you go to the Emperor Augustus and his life, what else will you find? Well, you find a virgin birth as well. Interestingly. Now, what we say there is, you know, that's not history. Uh, In fact, his his birth was um, very peculiar in that his mother, according to the history of um, the Emperor Augustine, was impregnated by a snake um, while she was worshipping. Well, why not, I say, If if that's what it takes to make the first emperor of the Roman Empire, so be it. Now, we would say that's what? Yeah, folklore, myth, legend, whatever. But it's actually important because it's trying to say something. But we wouldn't call it history. So, you know, many of us have been brought up and saying, oh, well, these are the historical books of the Bible. Isn't that right? Well, yeah, they are. But history meant a very, very different thing. Genealogy. I was saying, my lovely cousin, Heather was, and, and I are, are looking at our family tree, or at least I'm trying to look at my family tree. Oh, what a bother it is. <coughs> when you go through genealogy today, what do you do? 
Oh, well, it's an absolute... I, maybe happily I didn't catch that. It, it, it's an absolute pain in the rear end. That, that, that's what it is. You're searching through birth records and death records and all the rest of it, and you're trying to work. I've, I've got stuck at my great-grandfather, who seems to have changed his name. I, I mean, his surname at one point in his life, which was a real shock, you know. Um, who do you think you are? Whoops. Uh, a completely different family, it seems, uh, or, or maybe not. Uh, and I've got absolutely stuck because by the time he was on to his third wife, uh, he was McCarthy. Uh, in his first wife, he was somebody else. What was going on there? That's what genealogy is today. Back in New Testament times or before that, what was genealogy about? It was to show how important you were. It was to show your credentials. So there was no problem, <coughs> excuse me, in jumping 100 years or even 200 years because genealogy then isn't what genealogy is now. So when we come next week to look at our texts and we say, well, we need to understand what type of writing this is, we also need to understand that just because we call something history or drama or whatever, that's not necessarily what the people who were writing understood if they used the same terms. Uh, and, and a really good example here is myth. Myth is a dirty word, isn't it, for very many Christians? Because when we see myth, what do we mean? Untruth, lies, made up twaddle. When people in the ancient world saw myth, what did they mean? And what sort of truth? The real truth. Like the story behind the story. Which is often the truth that we really want to get to, isn't it? You know, we really want to know, what's this really about? And that's what myth meant then. It's a story that told us what something is really about. Which was distinct from a fable, which was just a good old story because people enjoyed good old stories. Um, drama. Um, any budding actors in the, in, in the building? If you go to a play today, what are you likely to see? Yes, versions of reality, unless it's a Samuel Beckett play or whatever. Uh, but very often, a sort of realistic reenactment on stage. If you went to a play back uh, either in, in Jerusalem, Jerusalem or in Greece or in Rome or whatever it would be, what would you have seen? Sometimes, yes, some satire, people sending other people up. But the classical stuff, you'd seen people standing behind masks, essentially reciting poetry, or what looks like poetry. Can anybody think of an Old Testament book that tells a story quite mostly, apart from the beginning and end, through poetry? That's okay, that just gives me two hours left to go. I understand that's important. Can anybody think of an Old Testament book, apart from the first bit and the last bit, tells a story through poetry? Job. Job was what? <laughs> Sorry, the book, <laughs> the writing, was a drama. And when you see it as a drama, the way um, the Iliad would have been, then... Lots of things fall into place. 
If you see it, I can do a wee jig to that as well. If, if you see it as in some way uh, somebody writing about something that was going on in heaven, actually, literally, between God and the devil, and a sort of wager, it's a little bit like the, you know, that one of those awful country songs about you know, the, the devil and cards or whatever it is, uh, then you sort of go, whoa, I think, no, what, is, what, is, what does that say about God and, and Satan and poor Job and all the rest? But if it's a drama, it comes to life. It's brilliant. Song of Songs that was mentioned was, I think, it's either a three or a five-part drama, but like my marriage, but we'll not go there. That's a whole, a whole different story. So what we need to ask ourselves is this. Uh, when the people wrote and the first people who read the biblical documents, what would they have seen? Not what do we see? And that's why I'm taking time to, you know, to labor through all of this tonight. Because what we all tend to do, not just devotionally, but in all conversations, is we pick up um, any bit of the Bible and we read what we see. And very often that's something very, very different from what the first people who wrote it and the first people who read it would have seen and would have understood. Okay, let me go a, a little bit further then. So, you might at this stage be thinking, I can't be bothered with this. I mean, frankly, can we not just skip all of this now and talk about Leviticus and Romans and 1 Corinthians? No. And the reason why I'm saying no is this is too important. If we're really serious about things that are <coughs> of critical importance for the life, lives and deaths of people, then we, we've got to be prepared to do this slog work, this thinking, uh, this homework. And we're only halfway there. But you love it, don't you? I do, you see, anyway. This, this stuff consumes me <laughs> uh, with, with a desire to get people to think about this and to engage with it uh, and to really grapple with it. Do you know those stories of people wrestling <laughs> with God in, in, in the Bible? That might be a drama, by the way. Uh, that's what I think we need to be doing much, much more of. We need to be wrestling with things. And you don't wrestle unless you work up a sweat and you get your muscles sore and tired and you probably get somebody throwing a rock at your head or whatever it is as well. So when we come to any of these documents and we might say, okay, that, that looks like a, a legal piece. And next week when we look at Leviticus, uh, instantly everybody will say, that's law. Interestingly, just jumping ahead a little bit, what do people say about the Old Testament law? They divide it into two things, don't they? Two types of law. They say there's the, the moral law and the ceremonial or ritual law. Isn't that right? Yeah. Rubbish. That distinction is not made in the documents themselves. It's a distinction that we have made. And then we impose it upon the documents as they actually were originally. So that's just a little you know, race ahead to where we're going. So when we look at 
any of these finished products, and I'm just using the Gospels here um, as an illustration, there's some more questions that we need to ask ourselves. Why were they written? Why were the Gospels written? Any ideas? Throw out an answer, do. Well, it's the first generation who were there began to die out. They needed to record it somewhere. Yep, they needed to... Um, as the original preachers, proclaimers were, were dying off, something had to find its way into a written form. But what was the purpose of the Gospels? Interesting. We, we would, so many of us would say that, wouldn't we? I'm not getting at you because you've been here before and we know we can <laughs> talk honestly. Well, they made a pretty darn bad job of it. Yeah, but if, if it was to tell the, the if, if they were biographies, how much do we know of what Jesus was like as a teenager? How little is very little. <laughs> as a 20-year-old, zero, we know nothing. As a toddler, <laughs> as a 30-year-old, yeah, just sneaking in, maybe. And how much do we know? Let's say, let, let, let's say the Gospels looked at the life of Jesus. Let's just say this. Between ages 30 and 33, although that's probably not quite it, but let's say three years. How much do we know of Jesus' life in those three years? About 10 days. About 10 days worth of material. So whatever they are, they're not written to tell us about the life of Jesus in that way. Sorry, why do you say 10 days? If you look at all the, all the stories and sort of um, put them together, maybe a little bit more, certainly well less than a month. If you put it all together, apart from the expansive bits of saying, and then Jesus went through. But they, they don't tell us what happened in March A.D. 30, although they wouldn't have called it A.D. 30, of course. Uh, and then in September 31 and, and, and so on. They're nothing like the biographies that, that, that we have. Well, happily, at, at least two of the Gospels tell us why they were written, which was to help people believe. To help people become followers of Jesus. In other words, they were propaganda now, propaganda is not a dirty word. But when we see propaganda, we think, oh, it's telling lies to get people on side. No, propaganda can be absolutely true. But they were written to bring people on side. That was the purpose of them. So everything that we read when we come to the Gospels, we have to think, well, this, this is to bring people on side. There's no intention, none at all, of giving uh, a dispassionate account of Jesus of Nazareth. They don't say they're dispassionate. They don't pretend to be dispassionate. They're there, said John. Uh, these are written so that you will believe. And believing, you will have uh, eternal life. When's the last time you read the whole way through a gospel? People who were here last uh, June should be saying, June! <laughs> June. I, I want to suggest, if you can, 
read, read at least two of the Gospels and see how different they are. And ask yourself the question, why are they different? Why was Mark writing the way he did? And why did Matthew write the way he did? Not that the names Mark and Matthew were originally uh, attached to those Gospels, of course, um, either. Second question, what sort of documents are they? See, they're not biographies. They're not history in the way that we talk of history, although they were history in the way that people at the time uh, perhaps talked of history. <coughs> it's a big question. And it's a question that people, um, if we were to sort of put it into uh, today's parlance, um, I, I love film and uh, TV and all of that sort of stuff as well as history. Uh, are the Gospels like documentaries? Or are they more like docudramas? Or are they more like, um, do you know the, the lovely phrase you get before some films, based on a true story? Or historical fiction? No, I think most people would say they're not historical fiction. And I think that's actually entirely fair. But they're not documentaries either. And when we come to read the gospel narratives, we have to ask ourselves that question. And then the last question of this, we would go, uh, and, and how did they get to be the way they are? Uh, and that's a really complicated thing. But if you look, uh, as we will in, in a few moments' time, if you look at Mark's gospel and you look at Matthew's gospel, what you will find is almost all of Mark's gospel is in Matthew's gospel. But he leaves some bits out. And then he adds in some material of his own. Why? What was going on in the editor or the writer's mind when he chose to leave some things out and put some additional stuff in? Again, do you see where I'm going here? When people say, the Bible says. We've got to think very hard before we just simply go, the Bible says. Let me race on through. Uh, a few more as well. Now, here's the bit that we really come to. We've looked at all of that background. Uh, and check it out, folks, if you like. If you think your man's standing up there and slabbering and making this up as he goes along. What I'm trying to do is give the consensus of expert opinion. Not my opinion. The consensus of expert opinion. That that's how the Bible documents came to be bound up in a volume that we know as the Bible today. But when people say the Bible says, maybe in a discussion about icing on a cake, I don't know. Uh, we can certainly say this, that undoubtedly the scriptures are the foundational, foundational documents of the church. No doubt about that. The church as it emerged as the official Orthodox church in the fourth century had the Bible as its book that it referred to when it wanted to look at foundational things. But what does that mean? And a phrase that people often use today is the Bible is what? The Word of God. And when 
the phrase the word of God is used. Um, the word of God usually means truth from God or truth about God. Now, in the Christian world, there are lots of ways of putting together the ideas of the Bible and the word of God. You with me? So, for example, the easiest thing that very many people would say is this. The scriptures are the word of God. Have you heard that? The Bible is the word of God. In other words, the Bible is the truth from and about God. And very many Christians believe that. And if they do, that's fine and dandy as far as I'm concerned. I have no desire to change anyone's opinion. But there are other ways that Christians look at the Bible and the word of God. Yeah? So, for example, some people would say, not that the Bible is the word of God or the scriptures are the word of God. They would say the scriptures contain the word of God. What's the difference? Some of it isn't the word of God and some of it is. So what bit might not be the word of God for people who argue this? The Bible contains the word of God. <laughs> Sometimes it's bits they don't like. Other times it can be something uh, a little bit more mundane. So, for example, when St. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he says, <coughs> and have a little look at it if you like, he says, I never baptized anybody. Oh, I did. Um, I baptized Stephanus and his family, but nobody else. Oh, well, maybe I did actually. Maybe there was somebody else. I can't recall. Now, most people, uh, many people would say, I don't think that bit is the word of God. I don't think that bit is actually God speaking. That's Paul going, um, actually, I can't remember. So some people would say, not that the Bible is or the scriptures are the word of God, that scriptures contain the word of God. There's a big one for one area of Protestantism in, in, in the last century, which says the scriptures are a vehicle for the word of God. Uh, in other words, the word of God, God's truth, is met by us uh, as God meets us as we read the scriptures. So the, the scriptures are foundational writings, but the word of God, the truth about God and the truth from God, comes to us in that dynamic process of us reading the scriptures and thinking and seeking God's mind. That's what some other people think. And then some people would say, well, what the scriptures are really is that these documents are responses to what people believe to be the truth from or about God. Now, that's quite a different little list, isn't it? So when somebody says the Bible says, their understanding of what the Bible is matters a lot, doesn't it? Even if we do all that homework that we need to do in asking all those questions about understanding which Bible and what sort of writing is it and all of that stuff that we've looked at, and then we go, phew, now we've got the documents, we've got the Bible. But somebody who says the Bible is the word of God and somebody who says the Bible 
is made of documents that are responses to the word of God. Aren't they going to interpret and view and treat the Bible differently? So if I'm number one, the scriptures are the word of God. When I say the Bible says, what am I going to mean? God says, this is it in black and white. If I'm number four, um, Leviticus is a response to what people believed was the truth about God. And I say, the Bible says, what am I going to mean? This is one interpretation. This is is a response that I need to think. Why was the response that way? What was going on? Does it hold true today? If I say the Bible is a vehicle for the word of God, and I read the same passage in Leviticus, what am I going to be doing? Yeah, I'm going to be trying to meet with God as I read it and wrestle with it to try to find what the word of God is. So those are very, very different ways of understanding the Bible. So again, when next week we go to look at the texts uh, and we, we look at all of these different things from Leviticus and Romans and so on, how you read that to a large extent will depend where you are on this little chart or somewhere else that you might be. Just 17 more of these to go, by the way. We're almost there. I, I, it's, um, our, so it's only five to nine. We're flying. Now, here's something else that we have to take into account when we wrestle with the statement the Bible says. It's a lovely thing called the hermeneutical process. It sounds like an illness, really, that you'd have to go and uh, get your hermeneutics seen to, but no, no, nonetheless... Here's the, the process or the track that we have to follow in getting from the original writing of a document to where we will be next week discussing it. And I want you to bear with me. We start off with a message <coughs> that is to be conveyed. And that message, as I've written up here, could be an event, it could be a concept, could be a description. So let's think of one, shall we? Um, let's say the event is Abraham and Isaac. I'm just taking that out, out, out of thin air. You know the bit where Abraham goes to sacrifice Isaac, okay? And the original person wants to tell that story because he has got a message to convey. What the author then has to do, he has got to choose words to convey that message. That's fair enough, isn't it? Have you ever struggled for words? What difference does a word make? It can make a lot of difference. Or sometimes it can make very little difference. But any of us who have been in relationships for any length of time will often either say or have said to us, what do you mean by that? 
And, you know, an individual or particular word uh, might be honed in. So if I or the biblical author wants to convey a message, he, and it almost certainly would have been he in those days, has to choose a word to convey that message or words to convey the message. The next step in the hermeneutical process is this. The reader has got to interpret the words chosen to convey the message. And again, you think, uh, you know, that's a bit ponderous, really pointing this out. Well, it it really isn't. Because again, how often have we said, uh, we've said something, somebody has come back to us, and you end up saying, no, no, that's not what I meant. Do you get misunderstanding of words? Um, but e- and even if we use contemporary language, uh, it can mean something very different, something germane to what we're talking about. Um, the word gay, 100 years ago, meant what? And what does it mean today? The same thing, no, no. <laughs> but in a different way. It's, it's a complete change in the meaning of, of the word. But even uh, just any choice of words that we might make. Uh, I have to write, as part of my day job, things for the Church of England that, that, that are sort of official responses to government consultations. And you've no idea, you probably do have an idea, of how many times I um, delete a word and put another one in and delete it and put another one in and delete it and then get the right word and then realize the rest of the sentence doesn't fit anymore and delete the whole blooming sentence. Just trying to get it so that somebody doesn't misunderstand it when they read it. Which is why texting is rubbish. Uh, And emails are rubbish. And the only way you can really communicate is face to face. Because then you can say, yes, no, I really didn't. Yes, you did. No, I didn't. Let's agree on the language. But of course, we don't have that uh, ability where we're dealing with biblical documents. So we've got the message We've got the author's choice of words. We've got the reader's interpretation of the words chosen to convey the message, which I suspect none of us in this room engage with. Anybody read the Greek New Testament? All the time. Literally, all the time. Or the book of Daniel in Aramaic, or the book of Genesis in Hebrew. Any of us? Of course not. This is what was going on when the books were first written and edited and people were reading them. But we've another step to go, don't we? The translator has got to choose words to translate his, and it was his, interpretation of the writer's words chosen to convey the message. With me? There's no other way of doing it. Jenny, you speak French, don't you? No, that's just a complete false memory. Are you wish? There we are. Sorry about that. Anybody speak French? Even badly, you do. Uh, Aidan, well, have you, have you ever uh, interpreted? Yeah. It's darn difficult, isn't it? Really is. I've got to give a wee talk in, uh, at um, this mini conference in, in Belgium in a few weeks' time. Uh, and they said... <coughs> it's going to be translated into Dutch and French. Uh, can you send us a copy of what you're going to say? Which is a little bit difficult because I tend not to write things out, as you, as, as you can tell. So I did and, and sent it. Um, and I would love to see 
somebody translate the Dutch and French documents back into English and to compare them with the document that I sent. Bet you they'll be really different. In fact, I might actually ask somebody to do that just to, just to see. Uh, sorry? Oh, no, please, please, Lord, no, not Google Translation. It's all, all sorts of strange things come out there. I hope they've got a proper translator for that. Uh, but this is really, really important. And it's crucially important because we're getting closer and closer into the nub of the problem, the heart of what we're going to be looking at next week. When we read in some of our New Testaments um, that the kingdom of God is closed to homosexual offenders. Who chose those words? Well, mostly men in, in, in this case, which is, the, I think, the NIV version, but... Well, the translator is all I'm looking for. Those people chose that word because they interpreted a particular word that Paul used to convey a message that he was trying to get across. How do we know if it's right? There are lots of steps there. Lots of steps. In fact, you're not a million miles away, Steve, in that what many translators do is they do get a little bit lazy and they go, well, that's how you know, it's always been interpreted. So that's the English interpretation of a particular word uh, that we look at together next week. And then, what do we have? I pick up 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 11 or whatever it may be, or Leviticus. And then I put my interpretation of the words chosen to translate the reader's interpretation of the words used to convey the message. And then what do we do? We have a good old fight over it. We discuss. And our discussion will be based on all our different interpretations of the words chosen to translate the interpretation of the words used to convey the message. So that's a lot of steps, isn't it? So when somebody says, the Bible says, I doubt very often that they're saying that. I doubt very often that they have in their mind, well, between Paul writing something, sorry, between Paul thinking something and me saying this is what it means, there are lots of things to consider, are there not? So I think I have to be really careful when I say the Bible says, and obviously when people say that, what what they mean is, you know, their interpretation is the thing uh, that's coming home to roost. Just a couple more to go. Stick with me, folks. You're doing very well. So where's God in all of this? That is, as far as I can present it, a, a factual rundown of how we get the texts that we'll be looking at next week in our hands. And again, that's the the consensus of of, of opinion. You'll find people who disagree on one side or the other, but that's common, general, sort of Bible um, 
textual stuff and historical stuff. So where is God in all of that? Answers vary, as you might imagine. Give me some of them. Yep. Other ways of seeing where God is in all of this? Some people say God guided the selection process of choosing the books, for example. Yep. Other ideas? Well, I guess it's the grappling process, the wrestling of people with God over many, many, many years. Yeah. And where, where, where is God in that? Sorry, David. Find, uh, sorry, with this cold, I'm not quite hearing. You find something of God in that, did you say? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, yep. So people come up with different ideas. Uh, some people will say, well, however complex and complicated the whole process that I've gone through tonight might be, it's all right, because God controlled it all. So even though it's really, really messy, I can stand up and say, the Bible says, and when I say the Bible says, what I really mean is God says, and what I say is the definitive final word. You ever come across that? Maybe so. Maybe so. Requires a degree of faith to believe that, but maybe so. Other people would say, well, God doesn't control it, but God directs it. He's sort of overall making sure that we get to the correct end product. Other folk again might say, well, God's part in it is a wee bit lighter touch than that. Um, God guides all of this. The original knowledge and the writing of the texts and our interpretation of it and then some would say, well, God enables it all to happen. And then we end up with this, uh, where is the balance between God and human beings in the whole business of translation and the whole business of interpretation? Those are big questions, aren't they? And of course, somebody could say, the original message, the bit of knowledge that um, Paul wanted to impart, God put that into Paul's mind. God chose the words that Paul would use. So in a sense, Paul was just like a, a human pen. God controlled the person who translated it. And God is in control of giving the right interpretation. That's a theory. But it's only one theory, isn't it? And it only surely applies to one um, biblical, biblical interpretation. Because even then, within, for example, English, there are so many, so does God control all of them to be different? Or not? No? Yeah, so, so it does require more and more faith, if you like. Uh, or it requires one to be more and more dogmatic to adhere to all of that. 
which is where we get to the statement that was made an hour ago, the King James Version, the authorized version, uh, is the Bible. Uh, And that's the one that God has controlled, not just the writings, the Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, but also the translation. uh, And then you have to add the the bottom little bit as well uh, to do with interpretation. Yes. Was he speaking uh, inspirationally in ourselves? Because obviously there wasn't a lot of writings that people were reading and version words. A lot of um, how we approach the Bible and this whole crazy world of how the Bible came to us and how we interpret it and understand it will depend very much on, on how we see the way in which God and human beings interact. The more we believe God controls everything, uh, the more we'll tend towards the top bit of that slide. The more we believe God works in partnership with or through human beings, the more we'll end towards the, the bottom of the slide. And so a lot of people's interpretation and application of scriptures really come from a different place than just going through all of the stuff that I've looked at tonight. Let me, let me move in close to the end of where we are. The Bible says there are some really important things that we have to ask ourselves when we come to look at our texts next week. First one is this. Are the texts directly relevant or are they extrapolate, are our um, interpretation and application of them really extrapolated? I put there Genesis 22, that's the story of Abraham and, and, and Isaac. Most people would say that text is not directly relevant today in that if anybody said, God has told me to take my only son and to sacrifice him on a mountain. What would the response of most sane, sensible and ordinary people be? Yeah, call call the police. Um, Call safeguarding or, or whatever it might be. That could not possibly happen. So when we read Genesis 22, and for those who are Anglican or Roman Catholic, (coughs) that was in the lectionary reading a couple of weeks ago, we don't see it as being directly relevant. We don't interpret it as saying God tells people to take their children and to put uh, a knife into their breast or slit their throats and burn them on a fire. Would we agree? But we don't rip it out of the Bible, do we? You might think we should, but what we do is we take an extrapolated understanding of it. Uh, And so, I don't know, Steve, if you talked about this a few weeks ago, but if you were to, what might you say about it? Oh, you should trust God. Oh, God provides that. Yeah, you you, you find some fairly anodyne and innocent (laughs) and non-controversial extrapolated understanding of it. Uh, Or we should be prepared to sacrifice the things that are most important to us for the sake of the kingdom of God. Something like that. Yeah. That's an even better one, isn't it? That's what you'll say next year. It's actually fundamental 
Yeah, and that's another extrapolated yeah. interpretation, yeah. isn't it? That it's really about it's God. Yeah, it is. Problems. It's really about God and Jesus, as yeah. some, some people would say. But what no one is saying is that it's, it's directly relevant. Now, this is a crucial thing. Because when we come next week to look at diff- various texts, we have to say, uh, is this directly relevant at all? And we just put that out as a little teaser for next week. Second question we have to ask when we come to our text next week. Are the texts prescriptive or descriptive? Genesis 1 is a brilliant chapter for this. Prescriptive is really saying this is, you know, when you've worked through all the stuff that we've worked through, uh, this is what God's saying should be the case. Descriptive is saying this is what actually is the case. And they may or may not be related. And Genesis chapter 1 is really interesting because all the way through, you know, God said and there was balances, prescriptive and descriptive. Uh, So it says, God says, let there be. And you've got this sort of command. And then you get that followed by a descriptive bit that tells us what that looks like. Now, it's really important to know, is something a command? Because the Bible writers believe that this is what God is telling us to do. Or is it a description of what actually happened? So, take another uh, example other than Genesis chapter 1. When the Israelites murdered, slaughtered every man, woman, child, and in some cases animals, and in some cases not, because animals were quite important uh, for the economy of the time. Uh, Was that a description of what happened? Was it descriptive, gory and horrible as it was? Or was it prescriptive, a statement of God's absolute will for the people in Jericho or the Jebusites or the Amorites or whatever other ites that there might be? It's a really important question to ask because what very often happens when people say the Bible says, they read it all as prescriptive. When very often, it might not be. It might be descriptive. Third question, uh, are the texts definitive or contextual? In other words, is this a statement that is true in all places at all times for all eternity? Or is it something that was right at that time and understandable at that time? First Corinthians 11, what's the bit that I'm getting at there? Anybody? Well, it's women having their heads covered. Is that passage definitive or contextual? Why? No, no, I don't mean... <laughs> most people would say it's contextual, wouldn't you? There are very few people around who would say it is true and right at all times and in all places. That, yep, there there, there are a few who do. But most would say it's contextual, yeah? Interesting thing is in that passage, Paul doesn't say so. Paul doesn't argue from context. He argues from principle. So shall we all... Uh, So all women who go to church in this building next week, if you go to church, have have your heads covered. 
And of course, as you know, that did not mean, that did not mean putting a hat on your head. Uh, that meant much more like the equivalent of the burqa. It was, much, it was your head covered, not something perched on top of your head. So that's a question that we have to ask when we come to these passages. And then one of the most interesting bits, this is my last little bit for tonight. Are the texts comprehensive or limited? In other words, even if we get all that the Bible says about something, is it saying everything that there is to be said? Or is it just saying a little bit of what is to be said? So the, the, the Mark chapter 10, Matthew 19 example is, if you read Mark 10, <coughs> Jesus is asked a question about divorce. And he says, whoever divorces his wife commits adultery uh, and causes her to commit adultery. Full stop. Pretty uncompromising. Matthew says, in the same incident, Jesus says, well, whoever um, d- divorces his wife without good cause. That's a big sort of introductory bit or uh, extra bit interpolated there, isn't it? If somebody, one of our Christians, 100 years after the life, death, resurrection of Jesus, had only Mark's gospel, and somebody asked him a question about divorce, he would go, absolutely clear. The Bible says. And then somebody else has got Matthew, says, well, actually, you're, you know, you're not right there, sweetie. The Bible says more than that. And then somebody comes along with a copy of uh, Paul's letter to the Corinthians, uh, looks down to what we call chapter 7, and Paul says, well, actually, there's there's more to it than that as well. There's another reason why it's entirely acceptable for someone to divorce. And what is there to say that all of those three together say everything that there is to be said? And it's a hugely important point uh, when we come to look at the Bible and sexuality. Now, folks, you have been hugely, hugely um, understanding and hardworking and laboring as we've gone through all of this tonight. If at times you think, gosh, that's hard going, good, really good, because if we're taking this subject seriously, and perhaps more importantly than for us in a sense, in one way, if those who are speaking on behalf of churches, whether it's a local church, or you know the Presbyterian Church, the Church of Ireland, or the Catholic Church, Methodist Church, Baptist Church, or whatever, if they are taking what they are saying seriously on the subject of the Bible and sexuality, they and we have got to do our thinking and our homework. <laughs>